everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You're listening to episode number 12. This is your host, Natasha Bajma, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. I'm recording this episode on July 8, 2018. First off, I have a personal update. Next week, I'm headed to New York City for Thriller Fest, which is the premier conference for thriller enthusiasts, bringing together famous authors, new authors, along with industry professionals, agents, and fans. This year, George R. R. Martin, uh, the author of Song of Ice and Fire, and more popularly known as the HBO drama Game of Thrones, will be the um, thriller master uh, at the conference, and he will be speaking and attending. And I'm a huge fan of the books and the series, and I'm so excited to meet him. Um, But obviously, I'm also going for my own fiction. Um, I'll be meeting with agents to pitch the Laura Kingsley series in the hopes that I'm offered a publishing deal. More likely, however, my soul will be crushed and I'll have to drink away my sorrows, but stay tuned for more information. Before we get to the show, if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time and costs of producing the show for only a few dollars a month. Please go to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. I'd really appreciate your support. All right, let's talk tech. This week, I have two headlines for you. Both are funny and more funny and less less serious than usual. So, um, but they both uh, caught my attention. The first is German police raid Augsburg Fab Lab confiscate 3D printed atom bomb. All right, this caught my attention. It also was sent to me um, by my friend and um, IP lawyer and 3D printing expert, John Hornick. So thanks for that. It came out on July 5 on all3dp.com. So what is this about? So on June 20, German police raided a fab lab in Augsburg, Germany, where they confiscated a three-inch tall 3D printed atom bomb. Okay, let me be clear. This is a plastic model of the Fat Man implosion bomb from 1945. It's a plastic model. It's three inches. It's made of thermoplastic. So that means it's the equivalent to a plastic toy. What are fab labs? Fab labs are DIY lab spaces that are open to the local community and they've sprung up around the world. Anyone can join in and learn how to use 3D printers. Um, Super cool. I haven't visited one yet, but um, hope to do so sometime. Anyways, these labs are designed to encourage people to experiment with this new technology. And this particular lab is located in Augsburg, Germany. So what happened? Well, the police picked up some tips, some suspicious tips, and raided the lab. Um, The founder of the open lab and all individuals present during the raid were arrested for setting off explosive materials. They were obviously later released, um, as you can imagine. There's a really cool YouTube video where you can see a bunch of dudes sitting around launching the plastic model from a spring launcher, somewhat like a Nerf launcher, and they're trying to launch it into an open vent. So yeah, this is very, very nefarious activity. We must, must prevent this from happening. 
This incident demonstrates the difficulty of mitigating risks of technology with broad accessibility and low barriers. So anybody can go buy a 3D printer and get into the business if they want to. Um, but they can be used, even, even these thermoplastic desktop printers can be used to make um, both harmless plastic toys, but they can also be used to make nefarious items such as guns, IEDs, and much more. So governments are going to face enormous challenges trying to police what individuals are now capable of doing within the privacy of their own homes. And this story in particular resonates with me because about a year ago, I bought a 3D printer and one of my first projects was an attempt to design a 3D model of the fat man atom bomb as a gimmick to promote a series of fiction books I was working on at the time. I eventually gave up trying to design a model myself because the available 3D modeling software was too difficult to use in just a few hours and I didn't want to invest 40 hours to learn the software to do it, but perhaps I can just download their model and customize it. Um, so that was funny. Next headline is Gene Editing Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Um, John Oliver actually did a stint about Gene Editing on July 1, which is absolutely hilarious. I mean, I think I cried. And offers some good info about CRISPR and Gene Drives. It also features, or makes fun of, my recent podcast guest, Dr. Josiah Zayner, who has on social media expressed his amusement about making it onto John Oliver's show. Yes, indeed, if you make it on a show, even if you're made fun of, I guess you have made it. But my favorite part of the video is when Dr. George Church, who is a famous geneticist, is asked if it would be possible to create a unicorn. And I think I nearly fell off my chair laughing both at the look on his face and then his answer. It's definitely worth a watch. Okay, let's turn to Bionic Bug. Last week, Lara visited the National Cryptologic Museum to meet with her mysterious stalker. Unfortunately, he was a no-show, but left a menacing note. He also cut the fuel line on Lara's motorcycle. In Chapter 12, Lara's with Detective Sanchez at the police station to meet with the medical examiner. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 12, The Autopsy. A putrid odor rushed toward Lara as she walked into the autopsy room, assaulting all her senses. Her stomach churned violently in anticipation of the onslaught. She gagged and the taste of bile made it worse. Don't throw up in front of the detective. Despite several visits to medical examiners in the past, Lara could not tolerate the smell of decomposing flesh mixed with formaldehyde. Still, she couldn't decide what was worse, an hour in the car alone with the detective or a visit to the morgue. The brightly lit room was furnished with white tile floors and smooth white walls. The temperature ran uncomfortably cold in order to keep bodies from decaying too quickly. Three stainless steel operating tables were placed down the center. Sully's stiff and naked body lay on the middle table, the lower half of his body draped with a sheet. The customary identification tag hung from the big toe on his right foot. Though his lifeless body was before her, Lara couldn't shake the feeling that she could go to the Wicked Bloom tonight and Sully would be waiting with a drink in his hand, an enormous smile on his face, and a friendly ear to listen to her terrible day. But that would never happen again. Lara swallowed hard, suppressing her emotions. I'm sorry, Sully. 
Dr. Caroline Stevens, the medical examiner for the D.C. Metropolitan Police, hunched over Sully's body. She wore typical blue scrubs with her hair, brown hair tied up in a bun, and she wore a face mask. On the carp beside her lay some instruments Lara had seen before, a saw for ripping bones and scalpels for cutting cold flesh. At the head of the table, there was a long stainless steel sink for washing and rinsing body parts. Above the sink, a scale hung from the ceiling for weighing them. On the counter next to the sink stood several jars filled with organs. Lara shuddered at the sight of it all, focused on taking short breaths to minimize the smell, and pulled her leather jacket tighter around herself. Sully's waxy, gray-blue tinged brown skin made him look like a character from a bad zombie movie. Corpses reminded her of the fragile nature of life and her own mortality, but also brought up distant and painful memories of her mother laying lifeless on a stretcher carted away from the accident that took her away from Lara forever. Dr. Stevens looked up from the body. Detective Sanchez, glad you came by. And you must be Miss Kingsley. Here, she handed them both face masks. Helps with the smell. Lara tried to smile, though her nose wrinkled of its own accord. She took the mask and hooked it over her ears. Have you determined cause of death? Sanchez asked as he also put his mask on his face. Yes, the cause of death is clear, but I'm rather mystified by something else I found, and that's why I wanted to talk to you, Miss Kingsley, since you were so helpful with your suggestion to test for toxins. What do you think killed him? Lara asked. The cause of death was asphyxiation. Apparently, the killer injected the victim right here. Dr. Stevens pointed to a small red wound on Sully's right leg. Lara shot a quick glance and then looked away. Referring to Sully as the victim sounded callous, but she had to remember the doctor didn't know him. Lara imagined the medical examiner had to keep emotional distance. Thanks to Lara, we know the victim died from a botulinum toxin injection. What? Lara furrowed her brow. The case was growing stranger by the second. First drones, then bionic bugs, and now biological weapons? What exactly is botulinum toxin? Sanchez asked as he shifted his weight and looked from Lara to the doctor and back again. Dr. Stevens handed a clipboard to the detective. The top sheet has a full profile. It's one of the most powerful toxins on Earth. Less than a microgram is lethal. And it's produced by the bacterium Clostridium botulinum, which can be found in the soil or in spoiled food. Don't you remember being warned as kids about bulging cans of preserved food? Sanchez widened, eyes widened. How does the toxin work? I mean, how does it kill? Dr. Stevens nodded. The toxin blocks healthy nerve function by inhibiting a neurotransmitter and causing paralysis in the body. When the muscles in the chest cease to function, breathing becomes difficult and then stops, leading to respiratory failure and then respiratory arrest. That tracks with the symptoms Sully had at the ballpark, Lara said. Before he died, Sully stumbled up the stairs, rubbed his eyes, and then vomited. In the hallway, I found him convulsing, and he died so suddenly. Symptoms of botulism can include blurry or double vision, Dr. Stevens said, nodding. That's probably why he rubbed his eyes. You're certain someone injected him? Sanchez asked. Yes, we found the toxin in his bloodstream which suggests injection rather than ingestion. There is also the injection site, and we didn't find any evidence of the bacteria in his stomach or digestive tract. 
How would someone get a hold of botulinum toxin? Lara asked. Well, as I mentioned, the bacteria that produce the toxin are quite common. However, it would take some skill to isolate a virulent strain from the soil or from spoiled food and then grow it, but it's definitely possible for someone to do that at a low cost, even in their basement. A more sophisticated perpetrator might decide to produce synthetic bacteria. Synthetic? Sanchez crossed his arms. Man-made. If we know the genome of a living organism, a scientist can reproduce it synthetically in a lab environment. This is, of course, no easy task and would require a great deal of scientific expertise. In my research, however, I found that there's an easier route for gaining access to botulinum toxin. And what's that? Sanchez uncrossed his arms and leaned toward the doctor a little. It's available on the commercial market as a cosmetic product called Botox. Injections of botulinum toxin are the most common non-surgical cosmetic procedure in this country. The toxin is used to paralyze muscles of the face where wrinkles can form. Any dermatologist's office or cosmetic surgeon that performs Botox treatments would have a supply of the toxin on hand. Lars stopped herself from telling the doctor to lead with that sort of information first. They do love to show how much they know. That's crazy shit, Detective Sanchez said, rubbing his forehead. What some people do for beauty. So, if he died of botulinum toxin, when do you think his killer injected him? Lara asked. Dr. Stevens rubbed her forehead with her arm. The average incubation period for the toxin is anywhere from 12 to 72 hours. He could have been injected on the day he died or up to three days prior. That means in order to isolate suspects, we need to track back his contacts for the last three days of his life. Sanchez looked up at the ceiling for a moment, as if thinking of how they would accomplish this task. Dr. Stevens nodded. If only Sully could tell us, Sanchez grumbled. If only I had Sully's journals. You mentioned when we first arrived that you were mystified by something you found, Lara said. What was it? Dr. Stevens pulled back the sheet to expose Sully's upper legs. I found an unusual rash on his skin. So that's why Sully was scratching himself at the bar. The red and black patchy rash was unlike anything Lara had seen before. Each of the red bumps had a small white dot in the center, reminiscent of an insect bite. I also found some unusual bleeding in the skin and organs, Dr. Stevens pointed to Sully's hand. Underneath his nails, his fingers are a purple color. Lara remembered seeing something strange about his nails. What does that mean? It means your friend likely came down with a form of the plague, which is caused by Yersinia pestis, a different form of bacteria. What? Lara asked. And what's the incubation period for the plague? Sanchez asked. About one to six days, Dr. Stevens said. So the victim was likely infected with the disease before he was injected with the toxin, the detective said. He nodded once and folded his hands in front of him, puffing out his chest as a smile spread. Dr. Stevens nodded. The signs I found are consistent with septicemic plague, which is a life-threatening infection of the blood most commonly spread by bites from infected fleas. In this case, however, the plague did not cause the victim's death, but it might have done so if the toxin hadn't finished the job first. I didn't think the plague could be spread by fleas anymore, Lara said. I personally know the scientist who led the team in editing the DNA of fleas. Maggie, that's my friend, said... They used a gene drive to transmit the new ge- genetic sequence through the re- reproductive process, making it impossible for fleas to carry the disease. Then they released large batches of new fleas into the environment around the country. 
the genetically altered fleas mated with wild fleas, and the new traits passed to succeeding generations. The detective shot her a you-think-you-know-everything look. Lara didn't understand why it had to be a competition. Dr. Stevens nodded. I know of that project. I found it fascinating. As for this victim, I don't really know how he picked it up. Another mystery to be solved, I suppose. Did one of those beetles bite Sully? Lara remembered what Rob's team found in Sully's trash. Actually, I think Sully was taking some antibiotics, streptomycin, so he must have known he was sick. Sanchez eyed her suspiciously. Do you know who prescribed the medication? No, my friend at the FBI found it in Sully's trash and couldn't remember the doctor's name, Lara said. I need to follow up with him. That could lead us to some answers. As soon as she mentioned the FBI, she knew she'd said something wrong. The look on the detective's face shifted instantly from wary to enraged. His nostrils flared and he clenched his hands. Without warning, he turned on his heel and walked out of the room, slamming the door behind him. Startled, Dr. Stevens took a few steps backward and tilted her head at Lara. Don't worry, it's me, not you, Lara said, trying to reassure her as she rushed from the room. She should have told Sanchez about her recent conversation with Rob. In her defense, she'd been kind of busy. Somehow, she didn't think this would appease the detective, especially after their hour-long road trip. Detective, stop! Let me explain, she called after him. He ignored her. Crap. Okay, let's take a quick uh, look behind the scenes. So in this chapter, Lara meets with the medical examiner, Dr. Caroline Stevens, and um, Dr. Stevens has found the cause of death, which was asphyxiation as a result of being injected by botulinum toxin. But Dr. Stevens also finds some mysterious symptoms that suggest that um, Sully was also infected with the plague, a bacteria. So... I guess the, you know, behind the scenes here is that I'm a WMD expert and I've been um, studying and teaching on these topics for many, many years. And one thing that most people don't think about when they think about the prospect of biological terrorism is that every pathogen is very, very different. Um, They all have different characteristics that make them um, more viable as a potential agent for biological terrorism or less viable. Um, But what all of them have in common is an incubation period. There is a time delay between um, the actual attack and the effects that arise as a result. And in this chapter, I kind of wanted to juxtapose the difference between a toxin, which is essentially um, a protein produced by a biological organism that has toxic, toxic effects in the human body. It acts very similar to a poison or a chemical agent, but it's produced by a living organism. So those are very different from your pathogens, which are um, bacteria and viruses, which cause disease. Um, The disease takes a bit longer to catch on. And so the incubation periods for plague or smallpox or anthrax are going to be longer than your toxins, which include botulinum toxin and ricin. Um, And so I just wanted to uh, kind of talk through that and... um, Uh, basically have illustrated that here in my book. So thanks for listening. I hope to see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. 
You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.